Thank you to Target for sponsoring this episode. Target is committed to using their size, scale, and resources to help heal and create lasting change in Minneapolis and across the country. On today's podcast, you will be hearing a conversation with me and two of George Floyd's family members, Angela Harrelson and Paris Stevens. In this conversation, we discuss how this last year has been since George Floyd passed away, the moments that they witnessed the video, and they hope they have for our community and beyond moving forward. They shared with us our heartfelt memories of George when he was younger, the connection they had to his mother, and just the sheer devastation that they have felt in their lives over this period of time. In my reflection, and as we commemorate the devastation that happened on May 25th on 38th in Chicago, I can't help but reflect on how my year has been and where I was when I witnessed that video last year. Over the last year of podcasts, you've heard me mention that my mother passed away last June. And when I think about my mother passing away, I think about the George Floyd video because she came home to my house two days before the video was released. When George Floyd called for his mother, it hit home for me in a way that touched my heart so deeply and will sit with me forever. It also moved me into action in the work that we do at the Minneapolis Foundation. While we had already been really deeply investing in criminal justice reform, particularly in bail reform efforts, it really pushed us to think more deeply, not just about how we get into action following the horrific death of George Floyd, but what did we need to be challenging ourselves on internally? How we could be leading more boldly? How we need to be thinking about race, racism in our interactions with each other? This last year has been a deep exposure to the systemic inequities that exist within our community. We've appreciated all the listeners that have enjoyed this podcast over the year, and we invite you to go deeper, to continue to listen with us, to continue to explore the historical context, to partner in solution building, to understand that we all do better when we all do better. We welcome you, Angela, in Paris to the Westminster Town Hall Forum. We appreciate you both uh, being here today on the anniversary of George Floyd's death uh, to talk with us and share your experience from uh, the point of view of family members. I'm Angela Harrelson. I am George Floyd's aunt. His mother is my sister. I, we come from a family of 14. My mother had 10 girls and four boys. We come from a family of, of sharecroppers, so we didn't have a lot of money. You know, no one had any money. We know the tobacco fields, the corn fields, how we made a living. So we all came from humbling beginning. We also survived the racism. You know, my great, our great grandfather, Hilly Thomas Stewart, was born a slave in 1856. By the time he was 21, he accumulated over 500 acres of land, but because he couldn't read and write, it was stolen from him. So when all of this happened with Perry, it, it was a heavy hit because we, we've already, as Black community, as a family, have lost so much. And so uh, Perry lived here um, in Minneapolis area. I live here. And when all of that happened, it was a hard hit for the whole family. Thank you for that, Angela. And Paris? Hello, my name is Paris Stevens. I am a cousin of George Floyd, we call him Perry. Um, my mom and his mother were sisters. Um, my mom is one of the oldest of the 10 girls. They were very close. Um, we called his mother Sissy, his real name. Her real name was Larsenia. Perry and I, we had more of our connection as teenagers. We would have family gatherings during the holidays, and that's the most of the time when we shared our moments together, which were 
very happy moments and we talked a lot about um, sports was our connection. Um, we both wanted to be in the, he wanted to be in the NBA, I wanted to be in the WNBA. Uh, so we talked, we talked a lot about that. I just want to thank everyone who has supported our family. We all had to go through this grieving process together and it has been challenging for us to navigate and then to figure out our own ways to grieve because there's so many different layers to our, our family. So we want to thank you and thank the whole world for supporting us. Um, it's been just unimaginable how much um, people care. And with the way that his, this tragedy occurred, I think a lot of people could identify, but then it has really opened the eyes of people and it's forced them to come to the realization that yes, there is racism, there is white privilege and unbiased and you know, racial injustice. Like I said, we just want to thank everyone for, for their support. Angela, you touched on a couple of things. So sharecropping mm-hmm. and in the tobacco fields, which um, many uh, Black families had sharecroppers following uh, sort of slavery. Mm-hmm. And you touched on the word slavery. Many people sort of make the connection of slavery to sort of where policing is today. And when I think about sort of the violence that occurred in the South through slavery and and sharecropping and Jim Crow and to where we are today, and as the family historian, I'm wondering how you've thought about the loss, because you said our family has already experienced, Black people have experienced so much loss in connection to those things. How, How have you thought about that or what do you think is important to lift up in that sort of story and legacy of of America? Well, you know, um, when it happened to Perry, you know, I thought about that. I said, gosh, we've gone through so much. And you wonder for 400 years if people are really listening. And we as black and brown people, to us, this whole racism, systemic racism, is was a sleeping giant. It truly is, because we have been negotiating inequality for 400 years. And even though we've been negotiating what I mean, we had to negotiate the vote. We even had to negotiate to ride the bus because we had to negotiate to even be educated because it was illegal for black and brown people to be educated in America. All of those things had to be negotiated. And so going through that process, we've never had acknowledgement. It was like slavery existed, it's abolished, get over it. That was a common attitude that we were received here as black and brown people. So when Perry's death happened, one thing that I want to say, the acknowledgement was finally here. The awareness was here. Now, the word systemic racism is used so commonly. And it took that death, his death, because it was so inhumane that it literally woke up to sleeping giant. Now, it was a reawakening, I think, for white America because they've heard our cry before, but our cry wasn't loud enough until they saw the awful death that took place in Minneapolis. So I look at all of that and I see the pain that as black and brown people we went through and, and, and the struggle is real. The struggle is real. But now I see hope more, hope more real to me. It's like now we have something, even though it was so grim and so so dark, hope is more real to us because, because people are listening to us. People, there's no more denial about the process of um, inequality. So many things are happening to help our race to be recognized and to have equality programs, programs about injustice. And that is what I'm looking forward to. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting um, when I hear you talk about uh, George Perry Floyd mm-hmm. um, and you you talk about sort of what happened to him and us interchangeably mm-hmm. in terms of us as a community and him as a family member. 
And Paris, I'm I'm curious if you feel the same way that it was pivotal in in terms of of the legacy. And you never know why people are put on earth. <clears throat> but do you feel the same way that this has opened up a moment for the world to see the experiences of the black community in a different way? I do. I, I definitely do. And like you said, people are put on earth for a specific reason. And this tragedy that happened, it, it did change the world. Like his daughter said, he, he changed the world. It forced people to have conversations now. Mm-hmm. You can no longer say that this doesn't exist. Conversations that were uncomfortable are now becoming the norm. It's what should happen every day. I, I say now that no one gets a pass. So if injustice is taking place for continuous change to happen, we have to address it immediately. We can no longer say we're, we're not going to be confrontational or we have to be politically correct. I feel that we have to address problems as they occur. And that has to happen even in grade school, all the way up into elder adulthood. It Mm -hmm. doesn't start with just police officers. It is a community problem. It's a public problem with injustice. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. We're sitting here on the anniversary of that murder. And I think that there has been a number of of incidents that have happened in our history where you remember where you were, you remember what you had on, you remember who you were with. And for me, this is going to be one of those moments where there was sort of a collection of things that were happening in my world that made it even more tender, even more impactful on top of just the horrific nature of how he suffered um, in his final 10 minutes or so. And I'm wondering if you might be willing once again, because I know you've been asked this question, but if you could share with us just the impact of that, because while most of us have had to grieve and we've suffered loss in our families, many of us, and hopefully most of us, will never have to suffer out loud in the way that you all have and to share that grief with the world. But could you could you provide us a little bit of insight in terms of how you found out and with that watching that video, uh, how that video uh, watching impacted you? And I'll start with you, Angela. Yeah, um, I actually did not know know he was killed till like the day after. <clears throat> it was on a Tuesday, I believe. I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear no calls from no family or nothing. So to me, I woke up. It was like a normal day. When I did find out, it was through a news reporter of some type of media. And I remember so clearly, I answered the phone that day. And he said, are you Angela Harrelson? I said, well, yes, I am. He said, I'm calling about the murder of your nephew, George Floyd, who was killed by the Minneapolis police. Now I'm thinking, because we know him as Perry. The whole family, we all call him Perry. You guys know him as George Floyd. So I'm thinking, well, he must got the wrong family. Because... I haven't heard anything, but I knew there was something in his tone that was serious. But I honestly thought he had the wrong family. But he asked me again, he said, are you Angela Harrelson? I said, yes, I am. He said, I'm calling about the murder of your nephew, George Floyd, who was killed by the Minneapolis police. And I'm thinking, boy, he, I wonder what family, you know, because it, it honestly, it was nothing was clicking, registering me. I remember saying, you know, you, he must have the wrong family. So I put the phone down. I hung it up. But something inside kept bothering me. It was like a nagging spirit. So I, something said, check your messages. I checked my messages. And I had all these text messages, you know, call me, call ASAP. And then something just, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm getting a little nervous here. And then I checked my voicemail and it was my sisters that called, you need to call ASAP. And I'm like, oh my God, what is going on? Cause I'm still. So I remember calling and the first words that came out of my sibling's mouth, Perry is dead. Police killed Perry, turned the TV on. And my mind went back to that telephone call. 
just like that. Then I heard my husband yelling, Angela, you need to come in here. So my mind is just all over the place. And I remember I ran in there and the minute I walked into that living room, that's where Perry was. On his stomach, handcuffed, and the words, right, I walked into the words, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And everything was going kind of blur. And then I heard him say, mama, mama. And he was gone. And I'm saying to myself, what in the world did I just watch? Because it's like my whole life just flipped. I was started crying. I was angry. I got a little hostile. My emotion was all over the place. My husband was trying to calm me down. He was trying to just be okay. And I'm like, no, it's not okay. So I get back on the phone. Excuse me. Give me a minute. Okay. So I get back on the phone and I started calling my family. I was trying to do three-way calls. I was trying to do four-way. I was trying to just call everybody. And when I look back on it, I was looking, I was trying to, I was trying. I was trying to get a different answer than what I knew. Cause calling everybody, and they were telling me the same thing. And so I just remember, I just trying to take all this in, and I was numb. And I remember sitting there, and I told my husband, he just stayed with me. I said, just, I just need some time, cause honestly, all my emotions was all over the place, and I was. <clears throat> I just didn't know what to do. I was lost. I was that day. I was lost. Mm. Paris, how about for you? Well, I had, I had worked late that night. And so like early in the morning, we have an uncle that's in, um, my aunt's brother is in, he was in Saudi Arabia at the time. And he had sent me a message with the video. Um, he said, you need to look at this. Um, Perry is dead. So I clicked on the video to watch it. And I was like, no, that's not him. That can't be him. This, this isn't happening. And so I laid there for a while. And then I clicked back on the video again. And I was like, is this really him? And I was watching the officer. And I was like, he's just gonna kneel on him for all this time and not come to a realization that this is wrong. And then you can hear the voices, hear him saying, I can't breathe. And I'm like, you're still not gonna move as an officer who's supposed to protect us. And so my mom came in and she was like, have you heard, have you seen? I was like, is this really him? I said, so I'm still in disbelief. I said. So they put him in the ambulance, right? And he's alive, right? And she said, she said, no, he's not alive. He died. Mm. He didn't. So, what did you say, Angela? I said he didn't make it. He preached his own funeral that day. He literally preached his own funeral that day. What do you mean by that? Because he was there and he was calling out and he said things like, especially going to the trial, tell my kids I love them. They're going to kill me. I can't breathe. And he wanted his family to know that he loved them. So... It was also what he went through. That, that, that's why I say that. And um, he fought. He fought. I tell people he fought 
for nine minutes and 29 seconds. He was fighting to live. And when he was asking Mr. Chauvin, and when he was telling him, I can't breathe, all he was trying to do was ask for help. That's all he was trying to do. And he was being what I saw being mocked. And I tell people, when you ask someone for help, you're not looking at that person as a monster. You don't ask a monster for help. You're looking at that person momentarily or whatever as a human being. Help me, I'm in trouble. And like Mr. Chauvin, the problem was that he didn't have a big enough heart to look at our nephew as a human being. Mm -hmm. Because he just saw a black man that he thought was, um, you know, on drugs and, you know, and, you know, so it's another black man that probably has problems. And so whatever, he wasn't looking at him as a human being. But Perry looked at him that way by trying to ask him for help. There are times that I wonder what those videos mean to the families that we have seen be brought into this level of devastation. And in this case, the video was so instrumental in holding Derek Chauvin accountable for George Floyd's death. But I can clearly feel how difficult that was for your family. But are you grateful that the video was taken? Yeah, I am. With, even though as devastating as it was to watch, if we didn't have that video, if that young girl, she was only 17 at the time, Daniela Frazier, if she did not hold, have the bravery enough to hold that video there for nearly 10 minutes, there would not even be a case. It would be another black man that died in the hands of police and nobody would know why. We'll be forced to take the word of the police. Paris, are you convinced that, that it wouldn't have gone anywhere without that video? No, uh, I'm about 100% sure that we would. it would still be their word against well, not his word, because he was dead. Um, but history shows itself that if we don't have something viable in front of us, that they're not going to be held accountable. There are so many cases right now. There's not enough evidence. And they can't even, they won't even charge them. Mm. Not unless have a trial. You can see in many cases where you do have a video and they don't get tried. Mm -hmm. So you, for colored people to have accountability, we have to have evidence, 100% evidence. Videos, body cameras. There can be nothing left for interpretation. I mean, with this video, there was no there was no room to say, well, no, he he didn't kill him because it was right there. It played out in front of everyone's eyes. You couldn't come up with anything else but a guilty. When after he was killed, the police officers that the report they did come up with something, but what they reported was he was, a black man was arrested and um, he died of medical causes. So they tried to cover it up. But when the video came, they had to pull that story. And right now, because of that, there's an investigation going on in the Minneapolis Police Department. Mm -hmm. Before we go to the investigation, I was struck by the fact that you called Derek Chauvin Mr. Chauvin. And then you talked about uh, George looking at him and seeing his humanity, but not that not being reciprocated. Where have you forgiven him? It's a work in progress because I don't want 
to be held as a prisoner, having hatred and angry and hostile and to be in that dark place. You know, we've already given him too much recognition as it is today, you know. So I can't carry around this hatred because all it does is keeping you prisoner. And, you know, and no one deserves that. So it's a process that I started working towards. Um, it's a healing process for me. I know that forgiveness does not exonerate anyone from their crime. You know, just because you forgive a person doesn't mean that you that you don't think they should be held accountable. accountable. It's about the process for me healing myself through the process. And so I can build up strength to be able to go on to continue this fight for others. Um, that's what it is for me. It's, it's a working process I have to work towards because I don't, I can't bottle up that hate and anger. I don't come from that background. My parents didn't raise me that way to have hatred. When the reason they, when the reason we probably should have hatred, how we've been treated through the years. But the point is, is, is love and hope that has got many black families forward. When you think about that's how we got forward going on through this process. We had to hold on to hope and love and, and work together for our, to fight for the fight. We had to do that. Yeah. Paris, do you have forgiveness in your heart or where are you at on that continuum? Yeah, I, I do. But it's, I have to be honest, it's very challenging, um, especially when, you know, we have continuously talk about it and it replays in your mind mm -hmm. uh, how Perry suffered. Um, but, you know, he was brave at the same time. Um, but we are a Christian family. I am a Christian. And I know that you you have to forgive to make it into the pearly gates. And that's where I want to be. Um, so I'm not going to ever forget. No. Um, so I, we got to focus our um, vision on continuing this journey. I always say keep walking the walk. So we got to continue on as a family, as a community, mm -hmm. to work on the process of injustice. Mm -hmm. So that is my focus. We you will hold yourself in, in a jail right along with them if you're holding in that hate. That's what I'm thinking. Um, but it is diff it's difficult. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, after, after the video comes out, it's now Tuesday, and now you see community reacting. Mm. Right? You see people taken to the streets. Mm. You see the fire starting, not just here, but across the country. You see the globe has tuned in and said, this is, this, this should have never happened. This, this should not be tolerated. So you go from seeing it and it being deeply personal to a family member, to the world identifying with your pain and your loss. How did that or did that hold you up? Like, what, what did that global response do for you, Paris? I was like, oh, my gosh. People are with us. When we are down and trying to hold it together, we have people that are out there protesting and fighting for us. That, that was an amazing thing, mm -hmm. to know that people across the world um, would protest and come together and always say that as long as you have a heartbeat, you can change. And I think some hearts changed. Um, so there is positive and hope. You know, we're in a time frame right now that people are not going to tolerate too much, as you can see. I understand completely. I understand their protest and I, I understand why some, it would turn a little violent or there were, you know, knocking down monuments and whatnot. But 
So I understand their pain because they felt like no one was listening for hundreds of years. We've done the peaceful walk, and, you know, asked for equality. And so I would have to explain to my coworkers why, well, why are they tearing down the monuments in Washington, D.C.? I said, are you really concerned about monuments? Are you really? Because I'm thinking that can be rebuilt. But life cannot be rebuilt. I can't have my Aunt Sissy go ahead and have another parent, you know. So I said, you have to look at it from a different perspective. We are all tired of the injustice. And it's a, it's a systemic problem. And through that protest, you could see what people were going through and what they were feeling, what their emotion was. I was so proud of the world coming together, coming to our fight for us when we were grieving in that moment. Yeah. Angela, I can see you thinking. What are you thinking about that? Yeah. I mean, living here in Minneapolis where it all went down. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, you know, I was just angry. I'm going to be honest. I was angry. So when they were like, protesting and rioting and burning down police stations. I was so angry, I couldn't even think I have empathy for what was happening to the buildings. I just didn't want to talk about it. I just wanted, I, it's, you know, it, I was a place where I don't want to, right now, I'm trying to get through this. I got to get through, I'm broken right now. I can't worry about what building it got burned down. And then I, then I had reached a point where, you know, I reached a point where um, I kind of shut down. Then people, my phone was ringing, Angela, they're burning down the police station. Angela, are you okay? People wanted to know what was happening to me. They were trying to find, where's George Floyd on it? I know he has an aunt here. The media was trying to after me. So I had all this stuff going on. And then I, I remember getting this call from Bethlehem. I'm like, Bethlehem? Um, FaceTime us. I'm like, really? We're doing a protest for your nephew. And then I remember getting other messages from somebody in Germany, Switzerland, Bulgaria. And I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, what happened? You know, it was like, because all this was going on in Minnesota and they were protesting and I finally realized it was a domino effect because to me at the time, I was just in Minnesota in my own world. I didn't realize how big it has gotten until I started getting messages. And, you know, because then I, I shut myself away. I really wasn't communicating with people, but people could still send me messages. They could still FaceTime me. And when I started getting outside messages from outside the country, um, have an empathy for me, then I realized this is this is huge. This is much bigger than I could even imagine. Because with Minneapolis, even though people hear about the rioting, they hear about the protesting, but one thing they don't know, in that Minneapolis community on 38th Street in Chicago, they were trying to keep that place sacred where Perry was killed. They had people in the community barcade each intersection off. Because even though there was burning and protesting, once that community came together and they said, we got we got to keep that area safe. We won't let that area burn down. I got to give it to that community. They were strong and they held it up when I couldn't, when I was too broken. And they, they um, lifted me up and they protected that site. With all this chaos that was going on, the Minneapolis community stepped up in the midst of it all and kept that place sacred. Mm -hmm. It's a year later. And so in reflection, what has the last year been like for you? Oh, my goodness. You know, I must say that this, it gave me a purpose. Hmm. I didn't realize what my purpose was at the time. I didn't realize I had a purpose. I was just so broken up. But um, it gave me a purpose. 
And because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to, to go out to, to be an activist. I don't know where to start. I think the thing is, I didn't know if, if I would be, if I would do it the right way. Because everything was just so new and so painful initially. But I always went back to that image and to hear Perry's voice, I hear, I'm sorry, Perry's voice when he would say, I can't breathe in that environment. And it took a lot of strength to say, I can't breathe. It honestly, it takes courage to fight for nine minutes and 29 seconds, especially when you're in pain, when you're in a place of darkness, when you're scared, when you're terrorized, when you have fear. And that takes strength to do it because you don't have much left. So I always said, and this was, and God made this clear to me, that if Perry can do this and manage to say, I can't breathe in those conditions, then I can find a way, the strength to be a voice for him and to go out. And that's what I did. And little by little, I started doing that and I became stronger. I found my purpose. My voice became a bigger voice. And, um, and for a year from now, I've gotten stronger and I'm working together with my niece, um, co-chair of George Floyd Memorial. I never thought I would be able to do that. So I learned so much about myself and I learned things about Perry that I didn't know as well, you know, through the process of growing. One thing about it, you know, I remember initially going to the memorial site. There are many times I was sad, you know, I would come there and I would pray to myself, you know, I have a moment of silence. But a year from now, especially after the first verdict, I go there now, now with a quiet, like a quiet confidence. I have a different walk when I go there because I feel now when I go to his, um, my boy to see him, you know, I can say, Perry, you can be at peace now because not me, not my family, not the world. We all did this for you. We held on. And we and we and we got a verdict today. And I said, now I feel proud. I have something to take when I go there now. And that makes me feel proud. I'm sorry. There is absolutely nothing to be sorry about. Paris and reflection, what has this last year been like for you? It's been, it's just been a whirlwind. Like you never think that you're going to be at the forefront of something like this, you know? You see it happen to other people all the time, way too often. But when it comes to your front door, it's unimaginable. Um, so in the beginning, there was so much pain and hurt. Um, you know, still wondering, you know, why in the 21st century, why do we continue to have to go through this? And other races don't, but it's, it's always us. Through the year, I've gotten stronger. As I has, has said, we we bleed on each other a lot. <laughs> My mother as well. So I have a close-knit group that I talk to constantly that is so, so supportive. A lot of times, in my perspective, with politicians, they were heartless and, and not, not honest, I would say. And so with this happening, I was like, well, I have to be different. I have to use my voice now. I can no longer stand in the background and let others do the groundwork, hmm. which is what I felt I did maybe when other incidents have occurred. I always said, oh, my God, that's not right. How could they do that? How could they do that to to Trayvon Martin, 
to Breonna Taylor and so many others, Emmett Till, way back in the day. How could we do this? How could we let it happen? But was I doing enough? Hmm. So now that this has happened, I feel like I have to do this. I want to do this, continue on this journey to fight for equality and to break down those barriers of systemic racism. We are now in this forefront where we can no longer be silent. And I am now one of those people who are who's has another who has another calling. We're both nurses by trade. So we already have that nourishing factor. So it, maybe it was second nature. But it pushed us to do something outside of the norm. Mm-hmm. And um, I just don't know if I, I would have been able to do this if, unfortunately, that period passed away. I don't know if I would have been fighting in this. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm glad that I'm here and that hopefully that I can help change what's going on in the world. Because mm-hmm. we, have, we have to continue in its community. I can't do it alone. Angela, she can't do it alone. It's going to take all of us. But I'm going to be in the front. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to be in the front. I think we've learned that more clearly over the last year. Um, If it hasn't become clear, it should be clear now that this really is um, a space that we all need to be in if we want a different sort of racial understanding in this country, in our city. Um, If we want justice to happen, we need all of us. And Paris, you mentioned politicians. So this naturally leads me to uh, our Attorney General, Keith Ellison who led the prosecution. And, you know, I have known Keith since he was in law school, so I felt comfortable calling him Keith. But, you know, what a phenomenal job. And, you know, I don't know. um, I watched every second of that trial. It felt like history in the making. I just want our listeners to to hear you talk about um, sort of the, the days of the trial and what the verdict meant for you. And I don't want to guide it too much because I want you just to share what that experience was. But I can see you nodding, Paris. Maybe I'll start with you. Um, I don't think I've watched a trial um, like this before, besides the O.J. Simpson. You know, I want to thank our uh, our criminal team that did, you know, an amazing job of putting the whole case together and building from beginning to end. But, you know, it, it just replayed you know, over and over again, the video. It was profound. And to listen to the accounts of the witnesses, mm. it, just, it just breaks your heart. They had to deal with this trauma then, dealing with it in between, dealing with it, their trauma during the trial, and now dealing with it after. They will always have some traumatization. And that part is, is very sad to me that they will have that. But they were brave in the same token to stand there, also fighting for care and being courageous. They could have gotten their own self-care, trying to intervene with those officers. But they felt compelled to stand their ground and to be in the moment. And they ranged from what she was nine years old mm-hmm. to someone else that was elderly, the, the gentleman with the glasses on, Lord have mercy. And, it just it just broke your heart to hear their pain and their struggle of what do I need to do? Feeling guilty about not being able to do more. But what a position to be in, to know that an officer, four of them were there and all did the wrong thing. They watched a lynching in front of their eyes. How do you come back from that? So I pray for them that God will give them strength to get through this. You know, hopefully they will have a good support system because they will need it. 
And then with the verdict, it was a relief. It was one of the burdens had lifted off, lifted off of our shoulders. You know, and we see that, well, perhaps this can set a precedent that if you commit a crime, you will be held accountable. Hopefully this does set a precedent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, yes, it, yes, it has. Um, the trial, oh my goodness, it was, emo- it was to, for, for me, it was an emotional roller coaster. I started off saying, you know what, I'm going to try, I'm going to be at the jury selection, I'm going to be there as much as I can, even though the judge said one family member at a time in the courtroom. And I, I said, I live in Minnesota, I want to try to get there as often as I can in case people can't travel from out of town. I thought I was strong enough. By the third day, I was I was just like drenched because I was just emotional. It's like an emotional breakdown. Hearing all these testimonies, this is the first time I have seen some of these people. The nine-year-old girl, like my niece mentioned, the martial arts fighter, the firefighter, uh, the elderly person, try, all of them trying to help. There was a young guy, the store clerk, when I remember Perry, they showed him in the video when Perry came into the store. And, you know, he was in there and I saw Perry, he was in there smiling and dancing. You know, I'm gonna be honest, that was good to see Perry in there doing his little dance and shuffled to the front. He didn't, did he did a little dance into the back and he was in a good mood in that store. And that part of the video made me smile. And then something hit me and said, you know what, Angela? That's going to be the last dance that Perry's going to do. And he don't even know it. I'm like, oh, my God. And that clerk that was in there, the guilt that he has, that he said if he knew that this was going to happen, he would have never said anything about the $20 bill. So there he is carrying that guilt. The witnesses, they were really, really brave, like my niece said. One of the things that I can say that really, really impressed me was the police officer's testimonies. I know the police officers have a a code. They don't really tell on one another. And to see them testifying and saying this is wrong, even the chief of police testified, their training expert testified on the prosecution side. That was historic. That usually just don't happen. What I saw people stepped up. They stepped up and it just made me feel proud. And they didn't hold back. They did what was right. And you know, America needed this verdict to be guilty. 400 years of this going back and forth, so many wrongs have been done. We America needed to make this right. And they did it with that verdict. So did it feel like justice? Because we've had this, you know, was it justice? Was it accountability? Was it both? Did it feel like justice for your family? You know, I everyone knows it was accountability. People going back and forth was justice. Um, they, about the justice thing, because he, Perry's not here. Well, we know Perry is never coming back. But to me, it felt like justice because so much what we have been going through to get this far. You know, people sing that song, The Change is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke. Change is here because of the death. And sure, we have a ways to go, but this, this was a historic moment. I felt so much relief and I felt like that verdict gave us the validation that we've all have been looking for and been complaining about that systemic racism is real. You know, systemic racism, you know, I tell people all the time that terminology is really nothing really new. It just came to develop because of the black codes 
slave code laws, also what else to call the and the Jim Crow laws. All these crazy um, laws that they had hold us back from going forward. And all they did was just restructure these laws into policies so that we to make it difficult for Black America to go forward. You know, because systemic racism, all these laws were put into to hold us back in the school system, the, the, the employment system, the, the legal system, judicial system, the healthcare system. So today we just call it systemic racism. Equality should not be an option for black and brown people. It is our birthright. And that's, how, and that's the problem with so many years, equality was made an option, option for us. And when you actually think about that, that's crazy. Angela, you shared earlier that throughout the year, you got to learn a little bit more about your nephew. Mm -hmm. While most of us got to know him in his final moments and through his death, you all knew him in his life. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you could share just a little story with us because he has captivated us mm -hmm. beyond those, those almost 10 moments. And we know that he wanted to be an NBA player, Paris, and you wanted to be in the WNBA. Could you could you all just give us something about who he was, a little story or something so that we we can know him and see him beyond those moments? Yeah, I know Perry. I mean, I first laid eyes on Perry because I'm his aunt. So it's a 12 years age difference. I first laid eyes on Perry when I was about four years old. I remember him to the house, running around with those shoes on outside, just racking his old pants on outside. He was very free spirit, but he was an adaptable kid because like I said earlier, we came from humble beginnings. We had a well where we pumped water. We had an outhouse. And so when my sister Sissy would bring the kids over, she had Ja back then, it was Ja Ja, his two sisters, Ja Ja and, and Tanya and Perry. And Perry, you know, he was really adaptable. I mean, he would get, he would stand on that little, um, I don't know what they call it back there, little stump, and he would try to take his little hands and try to pump the water. <laughs> yeah, it would help him pump the water, you know. And you know, when he had to go use the outhouse, he just did it. It's like it was normal. So he really was adaptable to a lot of stuff. And and I remember that, um, that there was a TV show in the 70s called, it was, <laughs> Seven and eighties, I can't remember the Flip Wilson show, and me and my sister, we thought he looked just like Flip Wilson. <laughs> Honestly, and people probably know who it was, but he was a comedian that did a lot of drag queen. And I wanted sissy, and I wanted. I told my sister, sissy, why don't we put like a wig on her head and see Perry say say that little um, tagline that Flip Wilson say, "What you see is what you get." And I wanted, <laughs> and my sister said, "No." <laughs> My boy isn't doing that. So anyway, um, so that was one of some of the moments that we had. But some of the um, other moments is to have when Perry first met his father, he was in his teenager. Because remember, my sister was raising her kids from a single parent. And Perry hadn't seen his father in years. And I remember it was me, it was Perry, it was my mother, his grandmother, and I think it was a couple more people in that car. And I remember knocking on someone knocking on that car uh, on the window. And I looked up, it was Perry's father, Perry Sr. Perry hadn't seen him in God knows. And he was got quiet. And he said, hi, I'm your, I'm your dad. And the car was so quiet. And I remember Perry saying hi, but he, I don't know whether he just froze. And, you know, he, Perry Sr. said a few words and he was gone. And I, and, you know, and I tell that moment because I was, I think I'm probably in my 30s at that time. But that was, I think that might have been a pivotal, pivotal moment for him because he never really talked about it. And that was one conversation that I regret not having to talk to him about it in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. How he really felt about that day. 
Because even though I was an aunt that was here, I couldn't teach him how to be a man. And I felt like that was something that he really, really needed in his young adult life and throughout his life. Because, you know, Perry wasn't perfect. You know, we talked about his prison time. We talked about his incarceration. And I remember Perry telling me, you know, I regret my decisions, but I'm going to try to be a better man for my kids and for my mom. And that meant something to him, you know, because he did have his challenges with sobriety. He did have his struggle with it. And he talked about his, uh, what people don't realize, he was very spiritual. Harry was very spiritual. He read that Bible all the times. Um, his favorite scriptures were in, in Proverbs. You know, um, he was talking about even having a church one day. And um, Perry loved to go boating. I didn't. I didn't know he even liked boating. <laughs> He's about six, eight. I'm like, really? There's all these things I'm learning. And so um, I think because of his humble beginnings, when you hear people say he was a gentle giant, it, it all came from the fact of his humble beginnings. You know, growing up and being around, you know, outhouses and things and pumping water and seeing his mother work as a single mother trying to raise him and being the only the eldest son trying to do the best that he can for his mom and that's where they came from because he was a mama's boy mm-hmm. oh I can tell that in those photos I've seen he seemed like he sat underneath his mom yeah Paris what memory do you have uh, to share He was a person that when he came into the room, he could light up, light up the room. But not really, he didn't have to say much because his presence alone was so, so strong. He was, he was likable. People in the communities, they just liked, they liked to be around him. He was tall ever since I physically laid eyes on him. I was probably like 11 or 12. Um, and he's always been tall and had this stature. So friendly and easy to talk to and was funny. He was talented. He could do almost everything very, very well. So not just basketball, football, and rapping. He actually was on a song called um, Sitting on Top of the World. So he was so well-known in Houston, even as a rapper. So, you know, he had so many qualities that were just talent, a walking million dollars. (laughs) And, you know, he and my sister, they joined church together. (laughs) They joined church together. You know, I thought it was cute, you know. And... Mm -hmm. She was in the wheelchair and he took her to church and they joined church together. That's a special moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty special. So as we uh, wrap this conversation, I appreciate you uh, sharing with us and putting it, you know, the emotion out there. And I recognize to the extent that I can how difficult this day, this this year, that moment was. And But I also appreciate so much the faithfulness that I feel through your comments, your orientation towards progress, Mm -hmm. your orientation towards hope that progress has been made and that we have to keep pressing for things to continue. We have a precedent, but we don't have... Um, you know, so we need to make sure that this is continuing. And so um, as part of that continuation and hope and you guys activating, not knowing what your purpose was, not knowing what this year would bring, but it brought you all closer together and you co-founded something um, together to continue uh, Perry's legacy. Can you share what that is and tell us about your work and what your hope is for that? Yeah, we we both started... Um, um, with Janelle Austin, and my co-chair is, of course, Paris. Um, what we started at the, with, with what we call the George Floyd Global Memorial, because so many people around the world kept coming to the site 
and they kept laying down these drawings, these paintings. There were even sculptures that they couldn't, people wanted to send us. So we just started to have um, a museum. We have a pop-up gallery now, and we're hoping to build this into a museum so we can put all these preserved things that we have preserved. Um, we have a conservation um, preservative team that do all of that. And so we're like, we have, oh my God, so many beautiful artwork that people have poured their pain, their, their, whatever they were feeling, they put in that picture, that drawing, even kids. And so mm -hmm. from that we're just hoping through not just showing that artwork and the sculpture that, we, that we're gonna get and paintings, we also want to um, restore the community, have program, educational programs, have art programs, um, be able to reinvest back into that community. And it, we want to offer something special. We grow the community, give something back, reinvest back in the community. And we want to have something nice so when people come around, you know, they feel comfortable, they feel welcome. But when they come in, they feel so they feel something really special. Because right now when we go there, you never feel the same way when you leave. And so yes. we want others to continue to have this experience through this experience is that through the experience that from what we experience and from what other people experience, when they come to the um, George Floyd Go Memorial, they can take that back and we'd be able to continue that legacy throughout the world. We call it the Living Memorial because we're going to continue his legacy. And it's not just only for Perry, but it's for those who have lost someone tragically due to police brutality. We want to continue to have a place where people can come from all over the world to see what has taken place from the moment that Perry passed away all through the months till now to the future. Yes. I guess I do have one more question. And, and you guys talked about, uh, you mentioned Emmett Till and you talked about the other families. And I know that you had a chance, I believe you had a chance to meet with Deborah Watts, uh, Emmett Till's uh, cousin. And I know that you've maybe spent time with some of the other family members and Valerie Castile. What, what have those conversations been like? Well, my most recent conversation, um, actually it's a good, good question you asked that, is with Dante Wright's because of another family just recently got killed. Um, I guess the police officer that did the taser and the gun, and unfortunately she lost her 20 year old son. And we actually, we talked, we just had a conversation yesterday. Hmm. Um, the conversation that I often like, um, the most recent conversation I should have, we go over, we just relive the moments, you know? And it, it was very important for her to relive the moments. Because where she is now is where I was a year ago. So she said, I just really need to have someone to really talk to, you know, that really, really can understand the magnitude of this, what she's going through. Because, you know, when you're going through this, you're dealing with um, the public because you're, you're, not, you're not the only one just grieving now. You're grieving with the public. And sometimes it can be very overwhelming. So we talk about, her missing her son a lot um, because Mother's Day came up mm -hmm. and that was the reason why the call. And she said, you know, people were saying happy Mother's Day. And she knew that she said, Angela, I know they mean well, please. I know they mean well, but I just don't feel complete because I'm missing one. She has seven children. And when people said Mother's Day, they were trying to, you know, make it, they would try to make, make her feel good. But she said, you know, I just didn't feel complete today because I'm missing one. And that mm -hmm. just broke my heart because mm -hmm. I myself forgot about, you know, Mother's Day a little bit, you know. Yeah. You know, George was uh, killed two days after my mom came home to my house for hospice. Mm -hmm. So my my story is a little bit around my mom and uh, hearing him call for his mom as I knew my mom was transitioning mm -hmm. in her life. And it took me a long time, but I cannot disconnect those two moments. Mm -hmm. She came home Friday. This happened on a Monday. Mm -hmm. And him calling for his mom 
mm. put me over the top <laughs> thinking about Mother's Day. And, you know, I'm I'm a mother of, of five. And, you know, obviously I love every minute and every day of being their mother, but I miss my mom. And so it was a bittersweet day um, for me on that day. You know, I can't imagine having that immediate loss and having it in the way that Dante Wright's mother is experiencing it without knowing what time of justice will happen for her and her family. I appreciate you both so much. Is there anything you want to say? I just want to say um, thank you for allowing us to use your platform for him to continue this legacy. And like I always say, we must not let his death be his last word. Yes. Keep walking the walk. Keep talking the talk. <laughs> Keep it moving, right? Yes. I um, will be praying for you and your family, and I will be keeping track of how you are uh, curating that artwork. Matter of fact, Miss Valerie Castile, um, the, the MIA, our art museum here, hosted a show that curated, I think, 17 to 19 pieces of art that came in the week following uh, Philando's death. And they had an exhibit there that was curated um, in connection with community to make sure that the broader community got a sense of some of the amazing um, pieces that were, as you said, sort of pain-transformed and, and pieces of art that showed up and she has them, you know, in her house and trying to figure out what to do with those pieces. So I, I really have a deep appreciation for you all trying to capture, capture that and to allow for the rest of us to, to have a glimmer into what people were experiencing and how, how that showed up for them. Yes. Thank you. It gives us a chance to narrate, um, to, to narrate this story because in history, historically, when things happen, unfortunately, Black people didn't get a chance to narrate their story because in the history of the books that is told, there's so many things that's been left out. I didn't read about the Emmett Tills in, in, in the history books when I was growing up. I didn't read about the Jesse Washington. You know, people forget about Jesse Washington. He was that, that, that was a 17-year-old boy burned alive, hmm. lynched him in the 1600s. So this, we get a chance, we do this, and have that museum and us as Black people narrate our story. Right on. Right on. If I can be helpful, I will. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you both. Thank you both. Have a great day. Thank you. you too. Thank you. Bye. That's Angela Harrelson, Paris Stevens, and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. Thanks again to Target for sponsoring this episode. This conversation was in partnership with Westminster Town Hall Forum on a special racial justice series in this month of May. If you're interested in sponsoring this conversation and looking for ways to do more, please contact us. You can find more information on our website at minneapolisfoundation.org or just simply give us a call. If you like this episode, you can tweet Shonda at Shonda S. Baker and let her know or leave us a review and follow us wherever you get your podcast. Thank you to Sarah Gillen for making our artwork and copy for this episode. And thank you to Darlin Benjamin for coordinating and making this conversation happen. This is Sue Pak-Kenitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you soon.